Yeah. Yeah. Listen to the thing that moves you, you know, yeah. and when it, and, 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 and make sure it's a thing that moves you, uh, <laughs> in a way that fills you with joy and not with fear, you know, and not yeah. with anger, because those are, I, I distrust those things. I, and it's not that I don't, you know, there's a place for fear, but I would, I would think about the thing that gives you joy and, and begin to unearth what that is and why it is. And, and also, you know, be patient with yourself because sometimes it takes a little while to get there. You know, I say like, at least my wife always laughs because she's like, man, every time you do something like you got to make it your career, like do, <laughs> do whatever you do thoroughly, like do it. You know what I right mean? Because it'll, it'll take you to the next step, but do it thoroughly. I like that. I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Gray Matters Podcast. Along with my co-host, Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Gray Matters Podcast. Our guest today is David Newsom. Uh, he, here, he's here to tell us a self-described weird, sometimes ridiculous journey to date. He's a storyteller and a native plant evangelist. He did. I read that his overriding themes in his life are storytelling, communicating, social engagement, and environmental action. So there's a lot. I mean, there's I, I've known David for decades. There's a lot to his journey. I'm not going to even try to get into it. On my own, I'm going to let him start, but uh, much, much led up to his passion for environmental action, which led to his found, the founding of the, the Wild Yards Project. It's an organization and business that helps people transform their incredibly fucking stupid long into native <laughs> habitats. As David put it, we can always bleep that out for the no, don't uh, some of the audience. Um, so now uh, the WIP has outreach across the U.S., runs a local habitat community garden, engages in speaking events across the U.S., and consults, designs, installs gardens locally. So there's, you know, there's so much more. You know, it's really about having the skin in the game and for future generations to be, to be you know, uh, to uh, uh, be accountable for what they're doing. I mean, we'll go into all that stuff, but... I don't want to really babble much more about this this organization and David. So, without further ado, my old friend and environmental wizard, David Newsom. Hi, Todd. David. Um, so, wait. Now, before we get started and dig in, uh, you'll hear another voice buzz in from time to time. Get that buzz, B. I'm trying to do a little kind of nature thing going on there. An accomplished musician and a successful voiceover and an environmental miracle in his own right. My co-host... <laughs> Tony Hoyland. Tony, say hello to David. Hey, David. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you, Tony. I, I like to spring whatever. He has no idea how I'm going to introduce him each time. It's the only secret of the whole interview is how I introduce Tony. I'm just so excited um, for all these chunky blues fills he's going to blast out of his Gibson. Oh, totally. So 
Uh, listen, there, there's so much to talk about you. Your career has been wild, but I know the focus today is on Wild Yards Project, but we got to go back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the journey. The, as I say, you know, the, the, the road to environmental activism was not, not so straight, if you will. So how you got there. We won't do, we could do a semi-Reader's Digest version because your resume could take, we got three hours of all the stuff you've done. So we could kind of try and sum up and then get into the... <clears throat> The environmental action. So can you take us back a little bit? How the hell did you get here? <laughs> well, I, I actually think that the journey is probably everything. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't, I, I wish that I had the presence of mind to have been the, the sort of environmental activist that I am now when I was, you know, 22, but I didn't. I, I was a, I was a, I was a person who there was the seeds of all this were, were within me, but at the time I was a fairly self-absorbed, uh, you know, um, and self-indulged young man. So no, you, <laughs> you, come on, uh, shocking. I got. I, I need. I need a drink. Yeah. Oh well, you God. were you were present for some of it. So yes, um, When I was young, when I was really young, my 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 overwhelming obsession and interest was to get outside and see what was moving and flying about. And it took me a very long time to, to find that again and to also understand why that was in me and how it was now important to act on it. And, you know, I meet people who, you know, I, I had a buddy who was in junior high I, and he was always like, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. And I'm like, damn, like he's a brain surgeon, you know, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, and I've been that way my whole life. And I've been like, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up, even when I'm like in the middle of a career that's doing fine i've always been like hmm. i'm with you brother on that one totally. <laughs> uh, yeah right so i have but i do think that there's a sort of arithmetic to it in other words i think it adds up because mm -hmm. i'm not a scientist you know i'm not i'm not i work with plants and i think about how plants are the primary so the fundamental sort of like you know in the in the indigenous culture they look at it like if you read um Robin Wall, Kim here, or any of these indigenous writers, you know, they'll say when they think about their role in all this, they look at plants, you look at it like an inverted pyramid, like the overwhelming, the overwhelming uh, entities on the planet are the plants. They're sort of the source of everything. And then, and then next below that is the animal kingdom. And then at the very bottom of it, you know, is us. And we're dependent and we look up to all of those things. And like, yeah. because I had a life, you know, in story, really, from one version of story to another, from, you know, working on screenwriting in school to be, then becoming an actor and then working in reality television, it's always been about story. So when I reawoke so kind of to the little kid in me, I also went like, aha, like, to me, it's the story. Like, my role in this is to be the storyteller, you know? And so everything I've done over the last... 50 years of my life has been kind of tuning up for that. And, and by the way, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, I'm working at full capacity. Like I, I would like my organization to be bigger and better funded. And, and so that I could tell more stories to more people with a better, you know, with a, with a better uh, means of amplification. But 
you know, that that's where I've landed in all this is that my role is to understand it now and learn as much about the botany and the ethnobotany and the history. And to be honest, a lot of our colonial history, which has been a giant and unexpected um, source of where I spend a lot of my time now uh, understanding. But, but also, you, you're, you're, you said, I wish you could be more. I mean, it's not that old. You're just beginning. True. I mean, it's growing. Yeah, so. it, it's growing steadily, and it's, it's really cool. It's, it, um, I, I'm where I belong. The thing that you said about having kids and, and, and suddenly you made you laser focused on the quality of life. Right. Your kids faced. And really, right. that's when we're going back to your passion for environment, how, environmental causes and, and, and activism and all that and why you started this uh, foundation. It really started with your little home in, in Southern California. And you got this. It's just kind of a beat up yard, correct? Yeah. I mean, it started a little before that. And, you know, that's a. Uh, when I was sort of transitioning out of acting, I was having I was having a lot of different experiences. And I actually got into uh, entheogens, which are plants that bring about spiritual awareness. And I did a whole series of different sort of meetings with shamans and, and participating in entheogenic studies and, and rituals and things like that. And part of that really kickstarted me. I, I became sort of like, you know, I mean, it was like a, it was like a rocket ship back to who I was when I was a kid and and a, and a very powerful awareness that the land was suffering and that I had forgotten a bit of who I was. And so I said, that's when I, and so my photography sort of came out of that, my need to transition myself out of a, a kind of, in a, a kind of investment in the industry that I found ultimately very dispiriting. And, and then, yeah. And, and so it kind of just kept happening and I kept taking different jobs to keep money coming in and, you know, keep the lights on. But that was always in the back of my mind. And then when we got married and had kids, we actually, when my wife was pregnant with our first kid, we, we didn't have any place. We were in an apartment. We had to get out of it. And we we're looking around and looking around. And the market was just starting to creep up after the second kind of real estate crash here in L.A. And market was starting to jump up and we couldn't get into anything. And we finally got a house in a lovely neighborhood here in northeast Los Angeles. But the backyard was just a giant dead lot it was just dead with all these like <laughs> like garbage and there was you know there was a bunch of little dead trees and people that i don't know what they had done they had done something i don't know what they were trying to do but it was like just a pile of crap and the house is fine it's a cute little box um little craftsman box and you know my wife was pregnant and i'm looking at this and i just was like this you know, we live about 70 feet from a really busy urban boulevard. And I had a real panic attack that my kids weren't going to even have the baseline experience that I had of the wild right. world growing up in New Jersey. You know, they were just going to have like traffic and sirens and this shitty lot. And so that and then I just I started really like in the most obvious kind of uneducated way to try to create habitat in my backyard. And I made a lot of mistakes and I and I've learned a lot since that journey about what is actually indigenous and the, the data behind plant and animal um, coevolution and all that. So it set me down a path. And having come from producing documentary TV, like I'm I'm a researcher by nature. So it's been a really cool journey. And it started out with making a lot of mistakes and kind of refining as I go. But I think it's interesting. You like you said something I read that is simple about. 
if you invite the wild things back into your world, they will come. You know, very field of dreams of you. Built it, they will come. Yeah. Because that's it. You said it, it's, uh, you, you transformed it, right? Your dead backyard into a place of kids for kids and bee, birds and bees and butterflies. And things begin to change. They come back because they say, okay. I think it's amazing that that transformation actually happens if you give it, give the, the, the nature and, and everything a chance to, to come home. It does. It, 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 it does. And it is, you know, it's, it's knee weakeningly beautiful in my opinion. And, and I wasn't a gardener like at all. Like I was not, I love to hike, but I never familiarized myself with the botany of where I lived, which is amazing to me now when I think about it. And that's why I yeah. cut people a lot of slack because as a culture, we are not fluent in the world that supports us. We're just not. That was never a thing. And if you if you are someone who chose to be that, you're you know you're like the the, the random person who who then went on to become a scientist and study botany. But it's not like it's a matter of survival, which it was for for hundreds of thousands of years. The cultures that lived here, they lived off of this land. And by the way, they lived really well. Yeah. They they lived really well. They were bigger stronger, faster, and had bigger brains than us. And so, you know... Well, then you... Well, <laughs> I, they, I actually was just trying to be yeah. polite. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, Todd, what I mean is they would have crushed you like a grape. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can accept that. And the, so anyway, the but really, and so the that's been... The, the part that's been very powerful for me is my own awakening to how much I didn't know about the world that supports me and, yeah. and why, you know, why, why is that? Why don't I know those things? Why? And, you know, and the answer is that most of us live in a planted landscape that is not indigenous. 96% of Los Angeles, the planted landscape is non-indigenous. It's exotic. It's from, it's from South Africa. It's from Australia. It's from China. It's from South America. And when you think that plants and animals evolve together, then you begin to realize the powerful uh, trauma that has been done to our biomes, our biota overall. Um, people wonder why things are collapsing. It's because we're doing it, and we've been doing it very systematically for 400 years. So learning about the land around me and really trying to understand, you know, when I, if I do a garden now, like I just went to visit a garden that I did on a, and I don't worry, I won't, I won't bog down in this too much, but it's on a southwest facing ridge. It's exposed sandstone mm -hmm. on a southwest facing ridge. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh Jesus, you know what will possibly grow on this heat, you know, excoriatingly heated raw rock spot. And the fact is that the plants I planted, I put two hundred plants and three thousand square foot of seed, and it's all growing beautifully because I would go up on hillsides that had the same orientation and just start writing down what lived there. Mm. And, uh, and, and it comes right back. And so the fact of the matter is we all live in a, a space. We, most of us live in an exotically planted space that actually is harboring indigeneity. And we just have to in, invite that back. And, you know, and then I can get into, like, why does it matter? It's well, well, but, yeah, but, but well, it's interesting because you, you said something that you went and planted this. You, you had to, what, travel 
just beyond it to see what was indigenous? Like, did you? How do you find out what was there? And that's a you big. You know, it depends where you live. So, luckily, that because of because there were people here uh, in the starting in the like the mid nineteen hundreds who actually cared about that, and so they started organizations and workshops. And of course, now they're indigenous plantsmen who've been just carrying these traditions forever. Um, and so those it's documented, they, you know, that was going on. You can find out. What you can there. find it. You, I mean, part of it is learning to actually understand what you're looking at, which is just a process. But, you know, I, we, our family, we, you know, my, my wife's family is back in Massachusetts or on the East coast. And we've gone back every year, uh, for the last 12 years to, uh, to, to Cape Ann, Massachusetts. That's where we spend a little chunk of every year to hang out. We bought a house there. And as I've been back there, we're slowly restoring the little bit of land that the house is on there back to its indigenous ecosystems. And it's a journey. Like, I had to learn. I had no idea. I didn't really know what I was looking at. We, we don't know. And so, luckily, now we have, now that we didn't even have maybe 10 years ago, we have a lot of apps. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of yeah. apps that you can go like, what is this thing? And it'll tell you. And it'll tell you where it came from. And a lot of the things that people think are weeds or whatever are actually the plants from our region. And so a lot of what we do, especially back east, is we're pulling things off the roadside, things that people think are weeds, and we're, we're using them in gardens because almost everything in the garden is is from somewhere else. And, you know... Uh, I, it just made me laugh because my brother used one of those apps and we were like hiking in Michigan. He goes, oh, what's this? And he, t- he had his hand out. He goes, oh, that's poison sumac. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, yeah. we're going home. We're yeah. washing. And um, very important plant ecosystems, actually. First of all, I want to ask Tony's. I'm like, hey, you, you're, you, you're a guy who goes out in nature a lot, correct? I mean, you're a wandering soul. Well, I walk around our town. You know, yeah. that's about yeah. it, man. I mean, I, lo- I, no, I, I really, I mean, I'm from New Mexico, so there's some of that automatically, I think. But um, yeah. yeah, not really. I mean, I love walking in Central Park, but I'm like exactly what you're talking about, David. I don't know what anything is. You know, I don't know really I know nothing about the plants that I'm looking at. Right. Well, there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing compelling you to know, you know, in our culture. It's just not, there's nothing compelling us to really understand the thing that supports us. And so the reason that so many things are occurring, both like trauma to to ecosystems and trauma to our wildlife, which is, you know, we're losing 10,000 species a year. We've had 30% die off of all birds across the world since 1971. We're facing similar numbers, slightly higher among bugs density and people are like well good i don't like bugs it's like well bugs are a fundamental pro bugs besides the fact that they keep your soil arid you know i'm I'm sorry they keep your soil healthy and they're a fundamental protein for like most wildlife and most life bugs do an enormous amount of good you know some people have said if you if you took our native ants out of the ecosystem then most of our systems would survive a couple months but if you took humans out of the system everything would jump right up so mm-hmm. you have to think about what's maintaining the systems. and Yeah, and I mean, Tony and I brought up uh, when we were chatting before is that obviously everyone knows about bees, the, the key. I, I saw it was National Bee Day, I think you were on your Instagram or something last week. Right, but that's a whole uh, other conversation. About bees, forget about it. Right, yeah. but do they? Um, but, but yeah, but do they know about bees? Because what people know about bees is that they think, when they think of bees, they think of honeybees. And honeybees are from Europe. And they were brought in as a colonial tool to deal with big ag and to pollinate because they can carry them around in houses, right? They can Mm. carry them around these big colonies. There's the Western honey, there's the European honeybee and there's the Africanized honeybee, which are all kind of like feral and mixed up at this point. 
And But in the United States, there's 4,000 species of endemic bee. And endemic bees do two to three times more pollinating on average than a honeybee. And it's easy to show. I could show you if we were standing side by side at the, at the Indian mallow next at the, the mallow right next to my office, you can see honeybees kind of like beautifully and smoothly flying around trying to pollinate. And you can see uh, a melicides bee, a longhorn summer bee, that's just like, it looks nuts. It's just going like, it's just like bam, 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 bam. Yeah. They have greater urgency because they don't live in big colonies. They live in like single colonies, like in little, the, the women, the females lay their eggs underground and the males actually just sleep in the plants at night. Um, but most people don't have any idea what a native bee is because we have been so, um, you know, we have been so uh, led to believe that honeybees are like our bee, but they're not. And, yeah. and, and even honeybees aren't actually endangered. Industrial honeybees are endangered because anything that lives in what is basically a penal colony has a hard time staying healthy, whereas feral honeybees are fine. They're very healthy, and they're doing well in the United States. So one of the subjects, you started to dabble in the, the, the stats, which there's a lot on your website of all the, the drama, the gloom and doom a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but... Going to the yards, the percentage of the groomed yards and all mm-hmm. that. What, what what are the numbers around that? And I, I, I want to before you you answer that. Like it is amazing since I've started reading and, and looking at your website, walking around towns and the manicured lawns and the 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 timers on the on the sprinkler systems and all that. I go okay, but I want you to know before you say anything. I have and my wife is very into this. She she no pesticides. She walks around and gives our neighbors no pesticides. So she's very into that. Nice. Uh, uh, and I would say that I don't even use a gas lawnmower. I do a push mower mm-hmm. and I have clippers. Uh-huh. But then again, I do have a yard, but it's a very small yard. So, uh, but I'm also, um, I, mine's looking very native because I haven't mowed it in a while. So, <laughs> right. you know. But yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how do we stop? I mean, what do we do now? No one's, people aren't going to say, oh, yeah, no, no, I'll get rid of my yard. You know, they, they, it's a, it's a, prestige or whatever i'm looking for right now the term like oh look at his yard oh look at those mm-hmm. edges. why mm-hmm. you know it's really it is crazy once i started reading my stuff why are these here these yards well because we're taught what's beautiful and yep. and we're and we're and we are conditioned to uh status right and so part of it is a slow process because you we we all have to you know as much as yeah, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Like the statistics are all the statistics, and they're undeniable. Mm-hmm. Um, but very few people, you know, do things out of a sense of like depression and guilt. Uh, in fact, they kind of want to shy away from it and just make a gin tonic and sit on the deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something, exactly. I, like, something I powerfully yeah. recommend uh, yeah. at all times. But so part of it is 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 finding a way to enroll people, to get people to see things a little differently. So when I give my talks, that's a big thing I do is like, is try to understand that our whole, our whole understanding of a yard is just an idea we inherited. We just inherited it. It's not, you know, UC Davis did a study on what kids actually do. What do people do at their homes? And there's, and this is in Southern California where you have four seasons to be outside, no sweat. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm pulling these numbers up out of the air. So I don't like, if someone's like, Oh, I went back to that study and you're, you know, I'm sure I'm a little off here, but essentially 
they found that the average child in Southern California spent 40 minutes total over the course of seven days in on their lawn. They found that adults found a total of 10 minutes on their lawn. Hmm. Of that, the average person uses about 15 to 20% of their available yard space, meaning that you could keep your lawn, but think about your borders, think about your hedges, think about giving that back over to the wild things in your neighborhood. And it, all it really is, is about thinking differently about how you use your borders. What do you put along the edges of your sidewalk and your paths? What do you do along that back fence? Um, because I, whereas I, I, I would have a hard time saying like, you know, convincing anyone by saying like, your yard sucks. <laughs> I feel it's an easier sell to go, okay, but maybe think about using this space along this wall or this fence differently. Or maybe think about using your parking strip differently. Or maybe think about like this public space over here, thinking about it differently. And, and, and also the thing that I work on all the time is when I ask people like, and I'll ask you, what's community? Tell me what community is. It could be a variety of communities, like people where uh, in my area that I see all the time in town. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be yeah. a group you get together. That's a community. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's defined in many ways uh, on the internet. It's a community that you never see the people. Mm -hmm. Similar interests. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's probably or better. shared concerns. Shared concerns. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things I ask people to consider is that community is actually the people, the animals. And the plants, because we're okay. we're very dependent upon all of those systems. Were there any of those systems to collapse, we would not be able to pull off life on Earth. So, if you begin to think about the whole community, then it and and you can and you can find a way to get that that it's plants and animals evolved together, but we are similarly dependent upon those systems. And even though you know the industrial agriculture has made it you know, convenient for us to think we're not, we are. And, um, and so then therefore, you know, I say like, give some of it back and you will get rewards. And, and when I talk about these systems, I don't just talk about the biota because some people just won't be moved by, you know, wildlife, even though wildlife is a sign of how healthy your system is. I always tell people, tell me what's flying over your yard. You know, get up at get up at six. Go have a cup of coffee. Sit in your backyard and tell me what's flying. Hopefully around. not a vulture. <laughs> Hopefully not a vulture. <laughs> I would love it if a vulture came to my yard. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I think health. I think people don't really think about health and how uh, a, a balanced ecosystem protects your health. Uh, and there's all kinds of data on respiratory disease, especially in children who grow up on yeah. artificial playgrounds as opposed to kids who play in, um, you know. In, in healthy ecosystems, the data, it's like, it, that's all um, very clear that kids oh, who grow up rough. around gardens tend to have less lower respiratory infections and things like that. Um, but also no, no. just about like, you know, here in Los Angeles, but really across, across the country, um, if you, if you use the basic tenants for creating habitat, you sequester carbon. Uh, your leaf litter and your, your plant canopy puts a lot of carbon in the ground and leaves it there as opposed to people who like have the gardeners come in and blow everything off. You're actually killing your soil when you do that. And your leaf litter creates a thing called humus and that humus sequesters carbon and it infiltrates water. So one of the great ways to keep our water that falls in the ground is to have 
indigenous plant canopy that also puts those things in the ground where they belong. And so oh. it's, it's, I think of it as like, these are, this isn't like some niche, you know, enviro nerd thing. This is about how we plan urban and suburban areas, how we design them better. And oh. there's plenty of, there's just plenty of data now to support it and stuff we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. Well, also being a, uh, as much as your native yards, I'm a water guy, and I just think of the amount of wasted water mm-hmm. uh, every day. It's just insane. It's insanity. Even in your turf, Gavin, I, Mr. Newsom, uh, the other Newsom, isn't he going to demand a mandate on water or something coming up? Or you're not? Oh gonna, yeah, we got some serious issues out there. Yeah, coming no, up. we're you know water. look, <laughs> I mean, we're about to run out of water. Yeah, you know, period, and. Uh, and the fact that, you know, in the United States, 10 billion gallons of fresh water a day are used on Jeez. lawns. Oh my God. Uh, and then you, and then you move that over to Los Angeles where 96% of the, of the planted canopy is, you know, these, these ridiculous yards, these exotic yards. Um, you know, it, it's not, sus- <laughs> at the very least, it's not sustainable. And so you can either pivot. And I would say that it's not sustainable anywhere. That, that we have one, you know, and, and as my friend Josh said, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, water's pretty high on the list, um, <laughs> for sure. But, um, you know, it, it, something's impacting all of us. It, it's it, climate, these things, climate change is impacting all of us somehow. And, and so to me, pivoting to more resilient and more beneficial landscapes just seems like an obvious thing to do. And, you know, yeah, I mean, Californians are in denial. And I can't we're, help. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't help thinking. Go no, ahead. you. Sorry. I can't help thinking that you guys in particularly Hollywood, Los, you know, Los Angeles, that area, they're going to be the last to give up their yards. I just totally. Imagine. Yeah. Totally. I mean, the you know, these are draconian restrictions. This is really terrifying yeah. stuff. I'm part of an organization called the Garden Party, and it's all people who work in uh, in more sustainable forms of um, of urban sort of landscape design. And we're about to put out a bunch of like documents that, for the city and op ed for for the LA Times and for other um, publications, as well as a bunch of social media to help people understand how to transition because it's, it's not going to stop. I mean, we're going to have, what we're going to have is droughts and floods. That's sort of how the water is falling now. Like back in December, we had some areas had 10 inches of rain in two days. Um, you know, and we thought, Oh my God, we're going to have the wettest winter ever. And then it never rained again. And, uh, you know, so, but I was just going to say, Todd, I mean, are you like me and aren't you kind of surprised that we don't already know about all this? Like, I feel like really unaware. I, I feel like well, we should know this stuff already. You know what I mean? Well, I just I'm very much of a water guy. And David David's brought me into the native yards. But I've always been drove, driven me nuts with pictures on a rainy day and people have their timer set mm-hmm. on their water. And you drive by in the their oh, water. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. Is, they're watering the lawn, but it's raining now because they've <laughs> left for the weekend. It's ridiculous, yeah. man. And you're like, what? Well, look, uh, you, you, you know, they, I would tell all those people out there, get an updated uh, irrigation system like Recchio 3. They're, they're weather smart. They're weather wise. So they know yeah. if it's going to rain, they just turn that thing off. 
Um, these, these are very old systems you're talking about that just run no matter what. And yeah, they're deeply problematic. I mean, look, here in Los Angeles, we have, we need trees, right? We have to have trees. So even though we're about to face these draconian restrictions, you know, we're telling everybody, what are your trees? Keep them alive because trees, uh, you know, they'll move moisture from the coast inland. And so designing for that is, is a big part of all this, you know, the city, uh, City Trees and a couple other organizations are really working to, A, get tree canopy into underserved neighborhoods. Um, it's very important. And also try and design tree systems so that they move that water. It's a phenomenon of trees that they, they release moisture and they move it along, right? We, we get that moisture. We get that uh, coming even from the rainforest out of South America. We profit from that. So, um, so part of this is not panicking. One of the things that really frightens me is in the face of these restrictions, what I see a lot of people doing is either putting down turf, artificial turf, um, which is a a true, a true environmental disaster and will only amplify the conditions you're trying to run away from. You might personally lower your water bill, but when you put down turf, you, you, you're putting down a, something that's going to move a lot of microplastics into our oceans but also it compacts the soil and kills it. Again, when you rob soil of these elements that make soil, you know, that make healthy humus, which is that leaf litter combined with the, the soil beneath and the leaf litter breaking down that cycle of life, when you rob the soil of its capacity to do that, it just becomes dead. So it no longer has the microfauna or the mycorrhizal condition to absorb water. It doesn't have the the capacity to sequester carbon, and all you're doing is heating the land up more. So you're amplifying the need for greater water restrictions. There's so many things that fall under under this umbrella that that I've been forced to look at. And again, I I was 52 years old. Like I didn't know anything. I had my head up my ass. I go to speak to horticultural societies. I go to talk to native plant societies, you know, everybody in the room knows more than me about the botany of these things, but really getting people to understand, you know, how we can create these ecosystems, these systems and why, um, you know, it's new for all of us because none of us, none of us have been raised to steward the land none of us for 400 mm-hmm. years it's not in our bones at all and that but it is you know I, I you know i say that but then i say like i have done i mean i don't know how many uh, i don't know how many people have sort of like heard my talks and then done stuff but you know i get a lot of feedback from people who've started this journey and i cannot cite a single person who's like dude that was fucked <laughs> you know like i don't know the plant died and i just paved the whole place like every <laughs> single person has been like oh my god you know like look what showed up in my yard and i'm like yeah dude it's cool. instant and so what i think is important is it's just you can't like what i tell people when they start with the yard i'm like start small pick one yeah. spot that's it pick one spot and but do it right like take the journey you know what i mean don't let yourself be overwhelmed if you're overwhelmed step back and go like you know okay just this one little spot i mean if you were going to start to run great advice start small start small no be like oh my god where do i start i think i sent you pictures of my yard yeah where do i begin i got stressed out (laughs) yeah of course that's what happens you get stressed out and then you're like you're like oh my god i need a nap 
you know? Yeah. But if you like, if you were, you know, like me, if I have bad knees and I'm like, I'm going to run a marathon, like I don't just run out and like blast out 26 miles and then end up in the hospital. Like you do a little walk. And, and this is a mindset. This is, we're really asking people to completely rejigger their brain uh, about what they think land is for and about what the value is of the dirt beneath our feet, because really this all comes down to the soil. We have mm-hmm. to begin to think about being responsible to the thing that keeps us alive. And that starts with just going back to what was already here. And then how do you make that? How do you fit that into your, your world? And that, even if you just don't have a, a lot of people don't, you know, part of this is also about equity and justice. A lot of people don't have homes. They don't have the access to these things. And right. that's why I'm kind of diverting my energy now to school, to public uh, school-based stewardship gardens, because I think everybody needs to learn that they have skin in the game and to begin to expect access to these things and to understand how to take care of them. So That's well, a great idea. Yeah. Start young. I mean, I, I think... Start young. young exactly. Yeah. Kids should come um, out of school thinking that this is their planet and they have skin in the game yeah. and they know what the planet is. Yeah. And be able to look at their parents and go, what, you didn't know? <laughs> like what the fuck? Yeah, I think what your organization is, I can comfortably say, I think it's going to be successful because I think, like anything in life, it's very geared towards storytelling. It's making people can digest what you're saying. It's not just grilling them with stuff. And everything seems to evolve around storytelling. Mm-hmm. And some of the people on your team and all that. I, you know, I, I think about your journey. And you, you gave us a brief, and it's much longer than you even spoke about, but. Do you feel this is truly your calling and it's just a law? It led you to this more than any of your creative endeavors and acting. This is what you has been festering, if you will, down below that it's just a matter of time. Well, that it came out. Are you asking or are you? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah because because this is the gray matters. I'm like, yeah. it's all about where you've made this journey to get here and this passion that you have now. Yeah, I feel this is it. Uh, this is what you were meant to do. Uh, you know, it's funny because I had I had the most like when I think about privilege, you know, it's never been hard for me to hear, you know, when the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, and we could go down a very dark road here with everything that's happening and even eco-terrorism in, you know, the environmental movement, which is something that I, we have to take a long, hard look at and the history mm-hmm. of it um, because it has a history in U.S. policy. But, um, you know, I, I've been lucky. You know what I mean? Like, I've been really lucky in life. Like, when I thought about acting, like, I actually got to have a career. And I got to work among people who are really talented and who were born to do this. And when I started getting into photography, like, I got a book deal. And I had I had a couple galleries. And I got to live in that space. And photography was always a skill set that I knew I needed to have. But there was a lot of times when I'd be like, ah, this is cool. It's not. I'm not going to be here forever. And I know I'm not going to be here forever. And with what I'm doing now, all I think about is how to do it better. That's all I think mm-hmm. about. I, and the solace that I used to get from going out for a hike and I'd still get an enormous amount of solace from that, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt myself and say, one of the big issues that I have, one of the big issues that I found in myself was that I had my urban life and I had my urban interests and then I would go for hikes and I, would, yeah. and I would go to recharge in nature. And what I know now very powerfully is that we're always in nature. We're always in the same space. Um, we've just done, done this in the urban area to it. 
And, right. and, and so I think of them all now as expressions of the same thing. And then I, then I think, okay, so how can I get what I get out there from where I am now? And how can I help us all somehow, you know, inspire us all to do the same. And, um, you know, so it, sorry, I, I, I had to go off on the no, thing I, because I think, we, we live that's... with this bifurcated mind that there's the, there's the kind of like human, there's like our busy lives and then there's nature. And that separation is what got us here in the first place. Well, it's kind of like you, you, the people can have nice houses with the yards, but then they, they don't maybe respect nature, but they, that's important to them to get away and go into right. nature. Go, well, right. it's going to, your damage. It's kind of my, always had my feeling about Antonio love this when I always felt with these, the actors on stage, but all the very wealthy people could buy the tickets, but the the actors are get paid nothing. Yeah. So it's just interesting how that, yeah. that, that always was strange yeah. to me. But. Yeah. And look, a lot of, there's a, there's a, look, I think we've seen enough, to know that there, there are many people in our country who are, who are dug in and they're dug into, you know, but there's a lot of people who want to, who, who I think are sensitive to getting that something's not working. And, mm-hmm. you know, those are, that's, those are the people I want to help. Those are the people I want to, you know, have a conversation with. And it's funny, even in my neighborhood, like, you know, I, my garden's been in the ground now. It's a largely, I mean, we can get into like, you know, my plants, the plants in my garden are actually from all over California. They're not just from, well, let's say, the, the ridge line above my house. And that's a whole other conversation that's boring if in this in this context. Um, but it's important. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it's taken a long time for a lot of my neighbors to go like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, what is that anyway? You know, and, and what I hope is that because of these draconian restrictions, it will get a lot of people to go like, okay, how do we make a more resilient, beneficial system? Not like, how can I just cement everything over, which a lot of people are doing. They're just cementing yeah. over their whole lot and parking cars on it. And yeah. it's a really scary thing to watch happen because it is it is so amplifying the issue. Um, um, the one thing I, I know, a little tangent, but not really, but when you said photography, I, I, I just have to bring it up quickly. Viggo Mortensen did your book? He did. He went yeah. To, he went to St. Lawrence, my college. Oh, was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. talking about an extraordinary mind. There's a guy who, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. There's a there's a powerful, a very exactly. very. Uh, I mean, like, the guy can hold his own in almost any arena. It's quite something. Yeah. I mean, it really yeah. is a Renaissance uh, man. He really truly. Is. He lived in a van up in St. Lawrence, and my girlfriend had a crush on him. He's, no one ever really saw him, right? But he like lived uh, lived. Uh, like a recluse. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah I mean, he's a, now, now, of course, St. Lawrence calls him all the time. He's a very private guy. Speak and all that. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think about the, the audience going back to the gray matters and, and to, to inspire them. I mean, along the way, I mean, what is the plan for you for this foundation, the future, anything? And what's different now uh, and, and than it was when you started? What's, what's the biggest change you're seeing and what's your plan for the future with this foundation and David Newsom. Oh, good question. Good, terrifying question. So for the nonprofit side of things, I want to get enough money to, A, I do this all by myself and I need a partner. I need help. Um, so I want to get to, I want to find like an admin person, somebody to help me with my social media and migrating things across platforms True. and just being, I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to, can you build that and get it out there? Um, but I also want to uh, get decks together built so I can get, I, I want to go back to storytelling now. I, 
I started out with a big emphasis on that, like literally trying to shoot little films and go, you know, I would go photograph stories and then write them and publish them in the, in the, on the website. Uh, but at, at a certain point in that journey, I was like, I just need to put gardens in the ground. Like I need to better understand yeah. how to do this. And so I, I took a two year dog leg and just focused on putting gardens in the ground and learning about the plants. And that has been a very big journey for me because I started out with a very like kind of casual approach to the plants. And now I have a much more specific and endemic approach to the plants, which I think is really important. So now in the, for the nonprofit side, I very much believe in school gardens and, and advocating on behalf of them and helping get them done. Okay. And so I'm really working on a, just finding a budget within school districts because school districts have their own demands for what you can and can't do, uh, you know, at a school. So, you know, there's just like trying to learn about like how to make a line item budget for a school garden. What is it? What is the LAUSA, the second biggest, you know, school district in the United States? What do they want? You know, how can I make sure I come, you know, with every answer they need to get this garden in the ground? And how can I make it as easy as possible for the teachers to have a curriculum around this garden so that the kids really have a sense of stewardship? And I say that because a lot of schools have green grants and they'll put native plants in and then the kids come out and stomp the shit out of everything because they have no relationship to it. So stewardship changes everything. It changes everything. I just went to a school uh, called um, the Esperanza School. It's run by a principal named Brad Rumble uh, down in uh, right in the center of downtown L.A. And it was just it was knee weakeningly beautiful to be in these native gardens surrounded by all these inner city kids who knew every plant. They knew every animal. They weren't, it wasn't set up. He's like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to open the gate and you guys can hang out and look at plants and let's see who comes in. And I would say easily 50 school kids came running through there and quizzed us about plants. They had their books. They wanted to rattle off. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, it's hard for me to talk about without crying because they're so disenfranchised. And they've never had access to these things. But given the opportunity to create a space where life can occur, the joy they get from that and the sense of responsibility was profound. And every kid should have that. You know, it's not about like putting a couple beds in the ground and raising tomatoes. And, you know, like I I get why people do that, but this isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an intimate understanding of the true earth that supports you where you live. And so that's, so one thing I want to do is get a proper fund for social media and telling stories so I can hire people, not just myself, but filmmakers to make documentaries about different people doing this across the country because they are doing it everywhere. The other thing is the school thing and being able to have the resources to put curriculums together to, you know, to figure out budgets because, uh, like I said, I do all this on my own time, and it's you know it's hard for me to do it uh, for no money. And then, uh, and then the third thing is better community outreach. In 2019, I took over a 4,000 square foot lawn down the street uh, at a local church, and I converted that into native habitat. Um, I want to do more of that. I want to help more people to do that, and I need the resources. So that those are my three things, which is school gardens storytelling and community outreach and garden design and maintenance. But like scalable, like you right now, you, you get the impression that if, if I was in, living in, in Southern California, I, 
I want you to do it, but you, you, you need more of you. So well, you're really the one man show right now. Sort of, but you know, and that's the other thing, by the way, the other thing I forgot is my national database, which I have. It's very crudely constructed. It's an open source technology. I do have a national database, but that all needs to be revamped to make it uh, easier for new emerging because there's a lot of people sure. coming in yeah. and they pay a small fee and then they get to sort of list themselves in this, in this phone book, if you will. You know, what I've done up to this point is people like go from Minnesota. They're like, hey, you know, I kind of like to do this, but there's no one here. And I'm like, actually, there are. Click on my map. You'll find a native plant nursery, you know, uh, and you'll find uh, these are landscapers that do the work. So part of it for me is like using my social media and my platform to get people interested. And then instantly, you know, like a car dealer, man, like getting them to sign in the room and getting them started. So that's that's a whole other part of my like getting my website more robust and able to handle a national database is really important. But in Southern California, it's actually it's an emerging industry. There's a lot of people, not a lot, but there's many more people doing a native landscape design. And there's more across the country. Um, you know, the Audubon Society called me to give a talk. And like I said, I'm, I'm flying to Des Moines in a couple of months to, to speak to the Horticultural Society there. Wow. So uh, I just did one for Portland. Um, you know, people are getting it. They understand that not obviously it's still a niche people a group of people but it's profoundly greater than it was even five years ago and i think the more people see it the more comfortable they become with it and that's why i'm saying like start small and you know one one little plot at a time uh, can really make a so big you're difference. Ma- you're, you're maintaining the optimism. I mean, is there ever time, you know, I, I asked my guests that the struggle is too much. Is it the frustration, what you're seeing overwhelming, or you just keep putting your head down and going forward, you know, one one yard at a time? I mean, there are other times going, you wake up going, what the hell am I doing? Um, well, we all do that in life <laughs> sometimes. But, I mean, basically, this the challenge is so uh, huge, yeah. but you you're just – you're going forward. I mean, that's the plan. There's nothing stopping you now. You know, I am not someone who uh, is probably going to be very good at designing hydrogen engines or, uh, <laughs> you know, can make uh, cell phones that don't need to, like, uh, you know, pull from horrible nickel mines or solar panels that don't need, you know, like, that's yeah. not my skill set. Like, this is my thing. This is my yeah. calling to refine and to yeah. expand. You know, I think all of us are facing catastrophic change on earth and and that is just going to come i don't think it's stoppable and i think you just have to look at like who you are in the face of that you know one of the things i say about these garden for kids is what i like about these gardens you know what i what i see over and over again with people is once you are gardening for indigenous ecosystems you are very practically taking on the issues confronting you you're taking on, if you're in Massachusetts, like suddenly like 15 straight days of rain and how that impacts those ecosystems. In Southern California, you're taking on a lack of water and, and you know, fires and heat. You're actually engaging with that. You have to. And so while it might be daunting or whatever, you are creating skill sets that a lot of people are just wringing their hands and going like, oh, shit, it's all so awful. Like the thing that drives me crazy is being around a bunch of like so-called progressives or liberals who just bitch and moan the whole time. And I always say like, what are you doing to engage with these issues? Because as we all know, like, you know, when I was a kid and, and, you know, like, uh, you know, John Caggiano was like, meet me at the flagpost after school. I'm going to kick your ass. I was like full of dread. 
You know, it's just dreadful. <laughs> but then you're like, I don't want to look, you know, I don't want to look bad. So I go to the flag post and while you're getting pummeled, you're like, you're alive. You're in the game. You know what I mean? Like later it hurts. But at that point, you're like, hey, I'm actually fighting back. You know, I'm not landing anything. Ooh, he just, that's my solar plexus. I'm going down. You know, oh my God, that's Sarah Wen's feet. Um, you know, you, you got to engage. It's more terrifying not to engage with the things confronting with us than it is to engage with them. And when you engage with them, you have wins. And the thing I can promise anybody who does this is regardless of what's happening in the world, you know, what you're reading. And by the way, social media radically imbalances our understanding of these things. And I, I think we all know at this point that social media it can be wonderful. And I listen to podcasts like yours and others that help me so much. But there's so much bad and dark information there. And I, oh, and so part of this no for question. me is like for teenagers, especially and young kids who are suffering like staggering rates of depression and environmental depression is change the story. Get engaged. Story. Like you know, that. go down fighting, like whatever. You know what I mean? Because the truth is we don't know the outcome. And if we were to powerfully, powerfully address the things we can address, it's going to have an effect, and that effect is going to be positive. David, I've got a question. Where can we find out more about what you're doing? Is it your own personal site, or is it the foundation site? Where, where would we go? My website, will hopefully, will be very uh, will be updated to more accurately represent the work I'm doing now. Um, and there's all – and what I tell people to do, like, for now – Join the Wild Yards Project on Instagram and just send me a direct message and I can help you find resources where you live. My goal is inspiration, education, inspiration, education, and implementation. Get started. There you go. And there's resources where you live. Trust me, you just don't know it. very important to make this this idea and this work appealing to people like make mm -hmm. it fun for them to engage i really work on that a lot with clients and things like that when i consult um make it fun, yeah. make it fun and make it and it, you know at the end of the day what i what i say is i think people are overwhelmed with this idea that they have no agency that it's all too much and the fact is they have a profound amount of agency like once you begin, you go like, holy shit, you know, I have agency. And then you start to, you know, slowly work with other people and reach out and you find other people. Unfortunately, at the same time, I also see what's not happening. I see what people are doing that is sad to right. me. I see ecosystems that have been completely destroyed by invasive plants, uh, you know, and that's sad to me. Like I used to take pictures of myself, like in spring jumping in the, in the black mustard, which is this beautiful. It's not actually black. It's yellow, you know, here in the Hills of California. I'm like, Oh, that's it. That's it. And that's an invasive species that is actually altering the soil chemistry and wiping out all the indigenous plants, you know, and I wish I didn't have to have an emotional reaction to the things I see that we're doing wrong. Um, but I do. But if I if I bring them up, I try to offer something that I think is valuable and useful and can actually help you interact with that event. 
And so I think it's really, I think it's always important to have a solution or to be working on one. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gray Matters Podcast. Please rate and review and be sure to tell your friends too. For more information about the Wild Yards Project, go to wildyardsproject.com. For more information about this podcast, go to thegraymatters.org. And please subscribe to The Gray Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, David Newsom, my co-host, Tony Oyland, and a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Todd Harrington. Until next time. Thank you.